complete the study of this chapter this, this evening, but we are going to work through these verses at least uh, to some degree and then may come back to revisit some of it on next week. Verse 10 says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? I've shared with you throughout our study thus far through this epistle of Hebrews that the overall theme of the epistle of Hebrews is that Christ is better. And as this epistle teaches us, Jesus Christ is first. He's better than the angels. Now, I want to add uh, some clarification to these statements so you understand more so what's actually being told to us. He is better than the angels. Now, we have to understand who the angels are. The angels are the messengers of God. The word angel literally is that of messenger. But these are some of the highest forms of the created beings. Remember, the scripture tells us to this a little bit last week, and you know these verses, that, of course, in, in the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ in Philippians 2, you know the scripture tells us that Christ humbled himself and, and, and became in the came in the form of a servant. The scriptures also tell us that he, he, he came and, and made himself lower than the angels. And he's talking about, of course, in the form in which he took on this flesh. And of course, in, in Philippians 2, the scriptures tell us that he being equal with God, thought it not, or thought it not already to be equal with God, yet he humbled himself and took on this form of the serpent, or servant, and he therefore became, uh, lowered himself lower, or became lower than the angels in that he took on flesh. And that's the implication here, that Jesus took on flesh in the form of a servant, in the, in the form and likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin, he took on this form, humbling himself, which is, the, which is what the scriptures are referencing when it talks about him being lower than the angels. It's not talking about the person of Jesus Christ. It's talking about the form in which he manifested himself. And again, that goes on to explain itself in Philippians 2, and Paul then speaks about God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And so when Paul makes that statement that, that he, in Philippians 2, that God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, we looked a little bit last week concerning that as well, how that the name of Christ is not talking about that by which we call him, meaning J-E-S-U-S, Jesus, or Christ, the anointed one, or the Messiah, but rather it is the authority and the person Christ. It is the authority and person who is Jesus. He was exalted, but yet he is, as we know, the very word of God, the very son of God, who's always been with God, and yet he humbled himself, and now God hath highly exalted him. But again, you must understand the context of this. It's not talking about the person of Christ. It's talking about the manifestation of Christ, the incarnation in the flesh, and that he humbled himself. He was always still over the angels. He was still at authority as Lord, even in the flesh. But yet he humbled himself in the flesh to take on the likeness of this sinful flesh in the form of a servant. And in doing so, that was the humility of Christ. But then again, Paul says, but God hath highly exalted him. Well, how could God the Father exalt God the Son any higher than he always already was as the eternal son of God. 
It's not that his person was exalted. It's now he is in a glorified flesh, which is above that of the angels. And he lives still in that flesh. And so when we speak of Christ being better than the angels, we have to remember that the angels, in a sense, are the highest, among the highest of the created beings because they are over that of man in the flesh of man. But then also Christ is a better high priest. He's in representing man to God. Christ is a better prophet in representing God to man. And Christ is a better atonement offered by God on our behalf. And Christ is a better mediator of a better covenant made between God the Father and God the Son. Remember the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was a covenant between God the Father and his nation, his, his people, the nation of Israel. But in the New Covenant, the New Testament is not a covenant made between God and men. It is a covenant made between God the Father and God the Son. And so this is a better covenant that, and he's the better mediator of that better covenant. And then it's a, uh, the covenant made between God the Father and God the Son. And then Christ also provides a better hope or confidence through his better ministry, which is built upon better promises, the book of Hebrews says. And so what we see here, obviously, and this is just a, a quick just overview of these truths, and, and there's more to go into, of course, and delve into as we come to these passages of Scripture throughout Hebrews, but yet Christ is better. And last week we examined the significance of verse 5 when the writer presents the distinction between Jesus, the Son of God, who is better than the created angels. Verses 5 through 7, let's read them. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be a father to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Now, I told you last week that this is a reference to a few psalms. First, Psalms 97, 6 and 7. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, they that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. Gods here refers to supernatural beings. Then Psalms 104.4. Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers as a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth, that it shall, should not be removed forever. So here we're being told in verses 5 through 7, which references Psalms 97, 6 and 7, and Psalm 104.4, that the Son of God is worthy of all worship, including that of the angels. Remember, Christ is better than the angels. This is the emphasis here. And it is as well important to see that he maketh his angels spirits. But the Son is begotten of the Father, sent from the Father. He is eternal and was made lower than the angels, the incarnation, that he might be exalted as the risen Lord, which is the glorification. Christ, again, and one of the beauties of this, I told you in Hebrews, teaches this so well as Christ who is the better high priest, our mediator, that the scriptures teach us and, and remind us of this wonderful truth that Christ is ever, he ever liveth. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, his majesty on high, and that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And again, the intercession that's made is not Jesus having to beg and plead on our behalf. The intercession is his very life, his existence in a glorified body in which now he always identifies with us as his people. He is in a glorified flesh. In, in, prior to the incarnation, prior to Jesus coming and man, being manifested in the flesh, Jesus always has been. And he was one with the Father. And he was spirit, obviously. But yet, then he became man in the flesh, the incarnation, humbling himself. Now, he is exalted in a glorified flesh and forever will be in a glorified flesh 
because of the Father's work of redemption on our behalf. And he ever intercedes. His, his existence, his presence with the Father is our intercession. So as long as Jesus is with the Father, as long as he is, is the Father is satisfied with his Son, we have intercession because of his presence. Jesus doesn't have to stand up again and plead on our behalf and say, oh, well, yeah, he messed up again. But Father, don't forget, I, I died for him. No, Jesus doesn't have to do that. His presence is our intercession. And so he identifies with us in the flesh. Verses 8 and 9, unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The writer again refers to the psalm, Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter or righteousness. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And what is so wonderful, as I mentioned again last week, about these references to the Psalms is the truth that we see Christ revealed as well throughout all the Old Testament. The kingdom of our God and Christ is an eternal kingdom. And the Psalms even help us to understand that because here the Hebrew writer is tying in the Old Testament and explaining it here in the New Testament in the proclamation that Christ is better and that God has now spoken to us. Though in time past, he spoke in, in diverse manners and he spoke to the prophets uh, under the fathers by the prophets and, and sundry times, many portions and diverse manners in many ways, but yet in different ways, but now hath spoken unto us by his son. He hath appointed heir of all things. He made the world by this Jesus. And, and the writer is saying, this Christ, this Jesus is better even than the created angels who men obviously, and, and were guilty at times of falling down to worship. And the angels, no, don't worship me. I, I'm as you, I'm a created being. Even though I'm not a man, I'm a created being. But yet men would be amazed at, and, and, and obviously gawk, no doubt, at angels. And if they could see an angel in the presence of an angel, while all the time dismissing the truth of the preeminence of Christ and how God has manifested himself literally through the Lord Jesus. And so here, the, the Hebrew writer is showing us through the Old Testament how Jesus has been revealed, even though they didn't understand this fully, obviously, but yet how Jesus was revealed throughout the Old. And in Revelation eleven 15, we're told, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus Christ is better he is the only begotten Son of God. God has get, called him his Son. This is the name that is above all names, the fact that he is the begotten Son of God. Now, within this chapter, this first chapter of this epistle, and we've already seen this, I wanted to review that especially to see this, but the writer references the Psalms, and I don't know if you've ever seen this before in Hebrews, but he references the Psalms in, first, in the first chapter of Hebrews at least nine times. In 14 verses, nine times minimum the Psalms are referenced. And references to the Old Testament prophets, at least six times these references are made. And such Old Testament references are significant when we're considering and when we remember the audience to whom the epistle was written. This shouldn't be too difficult for you. To whom was the epistle written? Hebrews. These are Hebrew people. And so this is significant that the Psalms and the prophets in 14 verses would be referenced 15 times. The Jews knew the Old Testament. Listen to me, please, closely. Baptists 
a lot of Baptists don't know the Old Testament. The Jews knew the Old Testament. And so when there were Psalms quoted or referenced, guess what the Jews knew? They knew what that was referencing compared to people today who may not know. And so we see here that they knew and understood the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews makes such references in revealing that Jesus is truly better than all that to which they had religiously held because it is Jesus who is the fulfillment of all that to which the Old Testament pointed. And so the fact that it it should not catch us by surprise at all that the Hebrew writer would reference 15 times Old Testament passages in 14 verses when he's driving home the point that Jesus Christ is better. Because the Jews obviously had a tendency, as you see through Paul's epistles, um, uh, or even like the book of Romans, for instance, and you look through Galatians, which was to the Gentiles, but he still references the Jews in there. And you find that where Paul, when he letters, he clearly indicates that the Jews were prone to carry this religious baggage with them. And it had a tendency, even as Simon Peter did, if you recall, had a tendency to want to revert back to a religious tradition rather than embrace the preeminence and superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul rebuked Peter for that, and Peter responded correctly, obviously. So Christ is better. He is the only begotten Son of God. And it's no wonder that these references are made because that is the point being driven home that Christ is better. Well, better than what? Better to, than everything that these Jews had held to and embraced. Again, I remind you what Paul says in Philippians concerning uh, his resume. Remember, he, he produced a, a rather impressive resume as we looked at it through our study of Philippians some months back. And if you recall, Paul says how I, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, uh, concerning uh, the Pharisees and touching the law. None could compare to me. And Paul prefaced all that by saying, if anyone were to boast in the flesh, no one can boast more than me. Paul literally says that. No one can boast more than I can boast. And then he gives this whole resume only then to say, I count all things but loss. For the excellency, and the word excellency is superiority, for the superiority of knowing Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, I count them all but refuse, all but dung. He says, all these things mean nothing. And then he goes on to explain the reason he does so is because righteousness does not come by these things. And so what Paul again was doing in Philippians prior to his conversion, he was living this life of religious Jewish tradition, which was not, which not, true Old Testament Judaism, but it was their their perverted form of it. And in doing so, he was following after that and, and he was holding to these things as though this is what one day I'm going to present to God as my righteousness. And then once he understood the superiority of Christ through redemption, he then came to the point of saying, I I cast all these things, I forfeit them. And again, when he says, I suffer the loss of all things, do count them but dung, he's not saying that, oh, I'm, I'm really suffering here because I give all this stuff up. He literally means I forfeit all of this because I see something that far excels all this to which I once held. And that's what's happening here in the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew writer is using Old Testament 
and the Psalms and the prophets to say, you've heard these, you've heard these truths from the, the law of God and from the prophets of God and from the Psalms. You've sung these truths. And yet, many have failed to recognize the personification of these truths manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. So that is significant in these Old Testament references. When again we consider who it is that Paul, or not Paul, but who the Hebrew writer is, is writing to, to his audience, and we understand who they are, then we begin to understand why these so many references would be so important. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Once again, within the verses of our text this evening, the Hebrew writer refers to the Psalms. Once again, Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture thou sh shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. This is a direct reference to Psalm 102, 25 through 27 here in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1. The Hebrew writer makes the correlation between the Old Testament revelation of who God is as creator and Lord over all with his previous statements concerning who Jesus is, which again emphasizes that Jesus is better than all that to which they held, being creator of all that is. In other words, the Hebrew writer is helping us to understand in the Psalms, you find this written, of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth. Let, let me give you this as well. This is interesting. If you look at Isaiah 9-6, and this is a passage very familiar with uh, during uh, Christmas time, of course. For unto us a son is born, or unto us a, a, a son is given. Remember, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And you remember the descriptions that are being made and given there concerning who this is? Counselor, Prince of Peace. But then there's one in there that, that might cause a little bit of an issue when you read it. The everlasting father now wait a minute is jesus the father okay let me clarify this for you okay because y'all aren't answering the question so let me ask you this did the father die on the cross jesus the man died on the cross but was god the father even on the cross no god the son was on the cross so why in Isaiah 9, 6, concerning the prophetic incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, would the Scripture say, the everlasting Father? When we know that Jesus, Jesus says in the Gospels, obviously, I and the, my Father are one. He does say that, doesn't he? But yeah, we know that the Father didn't die. We know that Jesus, God did not die, but Jesus, the man, died on the cross. He literally died, but that, that God didn't die. We know that. And here we find, that he says the everlasting Father in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have to remember something. In the Old Testament, you never see a proclamation of, or a clarification, I should say. You never see a clarification of the triune God. Now, throughout the New Testament, you clearly see that. You see it in multiple cases. Not only, and it's not limited to one verse. You see that, and then when you come to the New Testament as New Testament believers, and we see the Old Testament revealed in the New Testament, then we have an understanding of the Old as it's been well stated and through, uh, of course, theology 
class, we've taught this and quoted this many times, which is not original with me at all. But yet, the Old Testament, the New Testament concealed, while the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And the Old Testament is revealing the truth of, the New Testament is revealing the truth of the Old Testament. In other words, let me say it like this. The Old Testament is the seedbed for all New Testament truth. The New Testament is the fruition of that seed. You see it come in its fullness in the New Testament, whereas in the Old Testament, it is in a hidden form. And Scripture clearly shows us that. And so when you see the everlasting Father, it's not saying that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the everlasting Father, but there's no distinction made in the Old Testament in that time to see the clarification between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But then you come to the New Testament, we understand clearly that there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, which you also see clearly in the Old Testament with that revelation of the New Testament. And so here again, when you, when you consider what we were talking about in Isaiah 9, 6 about the everlasting Father, here in the book of Psalms, to show you the correlation here, in the book of Psalms you have, of old that's laid the foundation of the earth. Well, when the, when the Jew read that in the Old Testament, or when they sung the Psalms, many of them being songs, and they say, of the old, thou hast laid the foundation of the earth. When they say thou, who are they referring to? Who's the Old Testament Jew referring to? God the Father. But what does the New Testament tell us about who the Creator actually is? It's God the Son. And Colossians, John 1, Colossians 1, Romans 1, Hebrews 1, all of these passages clearly tell us that it is Jesus who is the Creator. But the Old Testament never spells that out for us. And so understand what the writer of Hebrews is doing. This is of tremendous significance. He has used the Old Testament, things that the Jews, the Hebrews, clearly understood and knew. And then he's showing them this God that you speak of and read of and sing of from the Old Testament, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is equal with God the Father. They are, there's this triune Godhead. And so the writer of Hebrews is showing them that. When you think you're talking about God the Father, God the Father says it is through God the Son that he made all things. And that's what the New Testament writers are explaining to us, and that's consistently taught. And again, just a side note here, when you look at the name, Hebrew name Elohim, in the beginning God, in the beginning Elohim, Genesis 1-1, that is the plural number for the name God. So it is plural in number, and plural means not singular, which means not one. It doesn't mean that there's more than one God, but it's saying, as you see in the New Testament, and as even Genesis says, that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And, and God said, let us, let us make man in our own image. Those personal pronouns are plural in number. So plural, the plural number name Elohim should not be surprising at all whenever we recognize that God is saying, let us make man in our image. When we know there's only one God, there's not multiple gods, but yet there's the triune God, which we will never understand fully and comprehend, obviously. And so the Hebrew writer makes this correlation between the Old Testament revelation of who God is as creator and Lord of all with his previous statements in Hebrews concerning who Jesus is, which again emphasizes that Jesus is better being creator of all that is. Being better meaning better than all that they held to or all that they, all that they, they uh, had practiced in Judaism. In 1, 1 through 4, 
listen to again what the Hebrew writer had written. And he ties this all together. He says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, again, it, it, in many portions in different ways, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So how is it that God made the worlds through his Son? And again, that's very interesting because it, just to go back to creation for just a moment, if you recall with me, people, and, and it makes for interesting conversation, I guess, but people talk about creation as though God took his finger and he carved the valleys and he mounted the hills. And No. What does Scripture tell us how God created? God spoke and it was. In the beginning was the Word, Logos, the, the divine expression of God. God communicated with, God cre- created the world through the Word, and God, and, and interestingly enough, you'll find in Paul's epistles that Paul even alludes to the power of creation, the power of God in creation, because he says that, that the God who spoke to darkness hath what? Spoken to us, to, to lighten us with the truth of the gospel, that he has illuminated us, he has brought us to life by that same spoken word. And so, God's power was demonstrating creation through his word, not through his... God is, is a spirit, and a spirit does not have hands. God did not create the world with hands. He spoke, and it was. But who did he use to do that? The, the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Jesus in a manifested flesh? No. But he came, became manifested in the flesh. And so it's important that we, again, recognize this, because even in Hebrews here, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he says that, he made the worlds by him. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Again, in the beginning was the word, John 1, and the word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And, and there was nothing made that was not made by him. And here he says, the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Again, he obtained a more excellent name being being exalted being made better than he humbled himself lower than the angels incarnation made better than the angels glorification but remember jesus could have speaking hypothetically this was not the purpose and plan of god hence it could not have been but as far as christ in his power and in his lordship jesus could have commanded the angels to do anything he desired while still he was abiding in an earthly flesh. And remember something, Jesus was not limited by the flesh, but Jesus limited himself to his flesh. And here's what I mean by that. You want to to see this proof? He spoke, and what happened to the waves? Well, how did he do that? He was in the flesh, because he wasn't limited by that flesh, but he chose to limit himself to that flesh becoming lower than the angels, that God the Father might exalt him above the angels in a glorified flesh. So this is what's being taught here. And don't, again, don't confuse that because if you're not careful and you begin to read these verses not understanding what they're actually saying, the context, you'll begin to think less of Christ than you should, recognizing him to be the very Son of God who's always been one with the Father. He's always been this. He is the living Word of God. And God created the worlds by him. And he is Lord over all. Let's look just in the next few minutes here, and I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. 
The writer further expounds upon the truth that Christ is better or superior by declaring three truths which he contrasts with that which is created. As the eternal Son of God, which is better than the angels, Jesus Christ, he says, remains. Look at verse 11. They shall perish, but thou remainest. Now, these are quotes from the Psalms, as I said, but notice here he says, they shall perish. The creation, the world, all these things God created, they're going to perish. They're going to be dissolved, but yet thou remainest. The verb remainest means to stay, continue, and reside. Christ has always been and continues to be. As John's gospel declared, I've referenced this many times already, but John 1, 1 through 3 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word, Jesus, was with God. The Word was God. The same was the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Again, when you go back to the Psalms and see that, oh, thou laid the foundations. Old Testament Jew is talking about God. But all he knows is one God, meaning he doesn't understand the Godhead at all. He just knows that there is a God. And this is, this is God, the Father. But yet, when you come to the New Testament again in John and in Hebrews, here we're being told there was nothing made not made by Christ. Everything that's made was made by him, the word. And verse 14 clarifies that for us. And the word was made flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten father, full of grace and truth. The glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. He is the very son of God. Again, one with the father, but yet not the father. Go figure that out, right? I've told you many times before, let me just mention this quickly. I embrace what is referred to, I believe most of you, probably all of you do as well, what is referred to theologically as Trinitarian monotheism. That there is one eternal Godhead, but there are three distinct persons of that Godhead that co-equally, co-quote-unquote exist. I hate using that terminology, but for our understanding, co-equally coexist as one eternal divine being, but yet three distinct persons, not three distinct manifestations, not three distinct um, uh, forms in the sense of, but yet all the same. No, these are, this is one Godhead that's three distinct persons. Now, again, I've said to you before that many, and I years back fell, fell prey to this and have corrected it before you and will again tonight, that many times it would be said something like, well, you know, the Trinity is sort of like an egg, right? You have one egg, and it is an egg, but yet there's a, a yolk, and there's a, a, the white of the egg, the yolk of the egg, and then there's the shell, right? But yet it's one egg. And then somebody said, oh, no, no, the Trinity is like a, like a person, right? Because, for instance, you know, I, I, am, I am a son, I am a, a husband, I am a father, right? But yet I'm still me, right? But look, no, no, that's not what the Godhead is at all. Those are just, it's terrible. And, and it falls into all types of heretical teaching to even begin to think or consider that or embrace that. And here's the reason why. And this is what's so beautiful about this truth. This is what's so beautiful about this reality of the Godhead. We have nothing to which we can compare him. There is nothing like him. And so the point is, we cannot say, oh, God is like this. Here's what I'm going to tell you. God is like God. <laughs> and there is nothing about him to which we can say he is like this or like that. And that but that should cause us not... That should not cause us to be disturbed. It should cause us to stand in awe and wonder of the truth of who he is and recognizing that we have no means by which we can comprehend the depths of who he is. And so he's beyond our, he's beyond our comprehension and he's beyond our attempt to describe him. But yet, he is. <laughs> and we can believe and know this to be true according to his word and yet still not be able to fully comprehend and understand. 
But here's the, here's the reality. He remains. He stays. He continues. He resides. Then it goes on in verse 12. Again, quotes from the Psalms, but he says that he is unchanging, verse 12. They shall be changed, but thou art the same. Now, this is interesting because the word same here is a pronoun. Now, that sounds odd, but it literally is translated same, but the pronoun literally means he. And this is interesting in that it is a word which appears to be used as a predicate adjective in the English language, yet in reality, it's declaring that although all things change, listen closely, Jesus is he. That's what it's literally saying. Jesus is he. He refers to the eternal God, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, or as it also stated in Scripture and referred to last week, the great I am. Jesus is he. And I told you in Mark's gospel there, I believe it's Mark's gospel, is the account, I'll rehearse it to you again, of when they come to take Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you recall. And in our English translation, it actually includes the pronoun he, that's italicized, which means it's not originally there in the text at all. But yet, they asked him a question concerning who he was, and he said, I am, and our translation says, I am he. But he actually said, I am. And when he made that statement, what happened? They all fell back. Why would they fall backward if he just said, I am he? Because he didn't say, I am he. He said, I am. I am the I am. I am the very one you claim to worship. I am the one you claim to submit to. I am the one that you claim to hold to. And they all fall back. He is unchanging. He is the great I am. I am that I am is unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same. Jesus Christ is he. Hebrews 13, 8, the writer goes on to say, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. But you know what's actually being stated? Jesus Christ, he Yesterday, today, and forever. This is the I am. This is the he. He is better than all of these. He's unchanging. And then last here, the third statement is made I want us to consider is when he says that Christ is eternal. Verse 12, thy years shall not fail. The verb fail means cease, die, or run out. While the angels again are created beings, Jesus Christ is better than the angels for he is the eternal son of God. The earth will be destroyed and made anew. But the creator is eternal. To eliminate any and all doubt concerning the question as to the superiority or excellency of Jesus Christ to the angels, the fact that he is better. The writer again quotes the Psalms, and this time he quotes Psalms 110.1, verses 13 and 14, or verse 12, when he says, that year shall fail not, he's quoting again that passage, Psalms 110 and verse 1. Verses 13 and 14 of our text says, but to which of the angels said he in any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them? who shall be heirs of salvation. By the way, that's an interesting statement just in verse 14 alone, that God sends his ministering spirits, these are angels, messengers of God, and they are sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's a very interesting statement. And there's great doctrinal truth within that statement because it's saying, what is the point or what is the purpose of the messengers of God? Well, he's ministering to those who will become the heirs of salvation. So Jesus Christ has been exalted in glorified flesh to the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, listen to what it says. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Now we're not here yet. This is Hebrews chapter 8, but listen to what the writer says. Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. 
This is the sum. We have a high priest that is better. Jesus Christ himself is better. All that they held to, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the offerings, the priesthood, all of these things that the Old Testament Jew would have held to, and then all this transferred over into the New Testament, and Judaism was still embraced and, and was held to dearly by many, and yet the Hebrew writer is saying Jesus Christ is better. He is the fulfillment. God spoke through the law, and he spoke through the prophets, He's spoken to the fathers. He's spoken many different ways in different times. But hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. And the very God that you are claiming to love, the very God you are claiming to worship, has manifested his self and his glory in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is better. He is better. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to these Hebrew readers saying, understand this and don't forget this. And he'll mention this later because he talks about them falling away. He talks about them letting these things slip, if you will, letting these things pass by, not being aware of them, so to speak. And so he warns them. There's many admonitions and warnings given in the book of Hebrews as well, which we will begin to look into as we progress in our study. But again, Christ is better, better than the angels, better than created beings. And and again, that's because Jesus was not created. He was manifested in the flesh. But he is eternal. He is unchanging. Jesus is he. He is the same. He is unchanging. He is eternal. He is the very Son of God who remains. He simply remains. And so we must recognize and rejoice in the fact Christ is better. And better than the angels. What an interesting way to start this. The very first thing he says concerning Christ being superior or better is better than the angels. But again, think about this for a moment, and I'm finished. You think about even through the years of our lifetime, there have been phases. I remember back in the 90s especially, there seemed to be an uprising of this affinity with angels and you know angelic beings and all, and all this TV shows. I mean, it, it's just everywhere, right? And people will, will be in awe and all of this about even the thought of angels or God working through angels. Listen, God has revealed himself to us through his son, the living word, by his written word. And yet, people are prone to become enamored by things that they think may be, totally ignoring Christ. Who is better? He is better. I'm thankful that's true. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. May we never forget them. 